Hey, you there? Hey, what up? Yeah, what's going on? All right. So, we have today our fifth episode of Marlins and Chow. Um, how y'all doing this week? I'm Joe Collins. I'm Drew Chow Bay, and I am tired. <laughs> we gotta you. wake up, Joe. Yeah, same boat, man. So shout out to uh, the West LA VA Center. I went there last night because I was having issues with my eye. And thankfully, there was nothing really wrong. They think it was just an allergic reaction. But uh, they got me in right away. And it was pretty good service. I was surprised. I didn't know what to expect. This is a pretty big city compared to some of the other places I use the VA. But got to give them uh, got to give respect where it's due. So um, just to give a, a brief breakdown, we can keep it pretty casual today since it's just you and I. Um, but our topics today, we, we are going to talk about um, Ocasio-Cortez and, and her winning and what does that mean for the Democratic Party and um, and for our generation at large. And then also, too, um, some of the issues that we think personally the uh, Democrats need to drop or press. We'll talk a little bit about what we think the new party system will look like in the post-Trump era. Um, and, and those are the big bullets on the agenda today. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we jump into Ocasio-Cortez, Chabin? Um, I think we could talk about um, Alex Jones being uh, dropped from almost every major platform. I think that's timely, and I think we should definitely touch on that briefly. Yeah, for sure. Go ahead. All right, so Alex Jones... Uh, he's been dropped from everywhere but Twitter, it seems like. So uh, they, um, who was it, Facebook, uh, YouTube, um, even a lot of his content was dropped from Spotify and Apple. They basically just said, yeah, this is in violation of our hate speech policies, and we're going to get you up out of here. So there's been a little bit of an uproar about it. A lot of people on the right are claiming that it is a uh, breach of free speech and I think they might be uh, – I think it's just too complex to say that it's just all about free speech. I think Alex Jones knows what he's doing, and he's intentionally manipulating people and selling them nonsense products on his website. So, And I think he uh, – I don't know. This is a, this is a tough one because I'm not going to shed a tear for him. Obviously, he's a terrible person. Who, uh, who says things like uh, the Boston bombing was a false flag and trolled the, uh, the families of the um, Sandy Hook shooting, saying that they were crisis actors and things like that. So when you get into these uh, different territories of libel and slander, which is what those would be considered, which is why he was sued by those families, actually, then I don't think that's free speech. I don't think you can, I don't, that's obviously not protected under the umbrella of free speech. So I don't really see this as censorship so much as purging the web of some of its uh, darker, more useless elements. So uh, a couple of thoughts there. Um, One, I remember, you know, I was reading into this the other day. And one of the things that really stuck out to me is they were talking about how Apple was the first one to move on his show and start removing um, his content from their different services. And that Facebook only did so after Apple did, uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, Another thing that I find really interesting, and this is something that 
uh, is becoming really prevalent is the amount of people who don't understand what free speech as elucidated in the Constitution means. Um, free speech as as shown in the Constitution does not mean that you're allowed to publish on anybody else's platform um, without them being able to control the content on their platform. Um, the First Amendment right gave you the right to self-publish by your own means without censorship from the federal government. Um, and in this case, it's not the federal government telling these people like Alex Jones that he can't uh, put his material out there. It's private ent entities saying we don't want to have what some would consider false news on our platform. And in some ways, it's really interesting to me because it's this evolution of one, we did have uh, foreign actors um, spreading uh, misleading news stories on Facebook and other social media sites. And then we had a backlash to that. And then we had even our current president start calling things that he just didn't like or didn't agree with fake news. And then we had um, a lot of attention that went to Facebook and the other social media sites about addressing this fake news. And now <laughs> they're trying to go after this fake news as termed or coined by a Republican president. But the Republicans were like, well, that's not the fake news we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty hilarious. I saw one tweet uh, that was, it was basically pointing out the hypocrisy and Alex Jones uh, saying that NFL players should be booted or fined for kneeling for the flag. And now he's talking about his free speech being violated. So I really do think that we need to go back to the Constitution. And it, we will talk about this a little bit more in the, in the party segment. But um, really understand what the Constitution says, because I think there's some confusion over what the actual principles are behind these ideas of free speech, freedom of the press, and, and freedom to assemble, which are great rights, and I'm so glad that we have the Constitution and we have our constitutional rights. But I think that by not knowing exactly what those rights are, uh, you're diluting um, the power of the Constitution um, because you're you're trying to elucidate rights that, or you're trying to bring rights to the fore that were never there to begin with. And so then it's like, what's actually real and what's not. So I think that's a, a good way to start um, today. Is there anything else you think in terms of implications regarding, or like predictions regarding where you think this is going to go with Alex Jones? Well, I think that, um, I think conservative speakers are a little bit too concerned. With it. I don't think that, uh, I don't think, they have anything to be worried about just yet, but I would keep my eye on it because they're worried that they'll be next. And these are, I mean, a lot of the uh, more rational conservative led podcasts and news organizations that, that broadcast mainly on uh, social media networks like YouTube, they're, they're worried about being dropped. They're thinking that the next logical step is for them to be taken down. And I just am not seeing that yet. But if that does start to kind of brew, then I think we definitely have a whole different conversation on our hands. But as of right now, it's just Alex Jones. I do think that 
it is a slippery slope of how like i think you really the, the different uh platforms and and uh you know technology app providers uh they need to definitely post a policy and make it very clear what falls into this category of fake news and what doesn't because i do think it's a slippery slope of picking uh winners and losers um if you don't do so uh and i think one of the things that should be on this kind of policy uh or outline of what falls into this is attribution right the main thing is i don't mind personally having a person like alex jones out there um or anybody else or even like you know uh to a certain extent russian actors making fake news to a certain extent like and you know stay with me here what i'm saying though is i think you need to say exactly who's posting it and have their information there and and have some sort of tie back to uh an identity. So one of the things I was reading about was, you know, Facebook's trying to get some bank account information or whatever. They were trying to create some sort of fraud prevention division. I don't know about all that. I don't know that I would do any banking through Facebook. But um, what I do think was interesting that they were talking about that was having some sort of identification for people who are, are posting to social media, such as uploading a, a photo of your ID. And when you have things like Airbnb and uh, I'm trying to think Venmo and all these other social apps that do have a copy of your ID on hand, just to make sure that if you did break the law, it can be traced back to you. I don't necessarily think that that would be a bad idea for a social media network. Now there was a huge backlash to the, even the, the, um, the proposal of it. People were saying, Oh, well, um, there was a bunch of different reasons. I can't really tell you, to be honest with you, what some of them were, because when I was listening to them, I was like, none of these reasons make any sense to me. But personally, you, I mean, you can go look it up. Um, just look up ID and social media and cases for and against. Um, and to me, I don't see why, if you're already going to be using your ID for something like um, ride sharing or for home sharing, that you can't do it on social media, especially if you're using social media to spread disinformation uh, or to, let's say, maybe coordinate some sort of violent act. It would be good to know exactly who those people are. And I think that we definitely have already reached the point where we realize, hey, social media is an extension of real life. So yeah, if you go on there and you try to, let's say, coordinate a murder, it should be able to be held against you. And if you don't think that people are watching or recording that, I think that's just more of you being dumb <laughs> by putting that stuff on social media. So what do you have any yeah. additional thoughts on that? Um, not at this moment. I think it's an interesting idea. I, I've definitely seen Facebook make a kind of attempt to expose fake news or at least give you a type of uh, give you a little link that pops up. Have you seen those little info bars that slide up next to the article and, it, and you click on it and it just says the website, the home website of this place and a little bit of uh, information about the source that posted it. 
I haven't seen it too much, but honestly, like, I don't pay that close attention to those things. For the most part, I feel like my mind kind of filters out what's fake news and what's not. Um, just purely through the con- uh, content, but sometimes I do feel that I need to click in and read more. But I don't know that I'm necessarily your average person. I mean, I have seen quite a few people who will just share things without clicking on the link or looking into it anymore, other than just a headline. Um, yeah, and you're not just to just to kind of add to that. You're not the average person when it comes to uh, the type of news that you. Uh, consume so somebody that is used to reading news articles somebody that would have been reading news articles regularly if it weren't for social media knows how to distinguish facts from fiction you know at least enough and you know how to move in this space where you can see what looks fishy and what doesn't and most of the people I would say that are using social media now don't have those tools built in because reading news articles is brand new to them so they see it written down on paper and they go, okay, this is true then. This is my truth. And then they run with that. So it's why it's so easy to manipulate people with fake news because they literally don't have the tools internally to distinguish what's real and what's not. And see, my argument with that, and this is why I was saying with the Russia thing, like on one hand, it's very clear that they made an aggressive campaign um, uh psychological warfare campaign against the United States to try to influence American politics. Mm -hmm. My argument is that that has always happened using whatever means were available. And I don't think that just because Facebook is around that all of a sudden now psychological warfare campaigns in the United States are happening and that they're effective. I'm sure Um, And probably to a lesser extent, because we're so far removed from Europe. Um, But I'm sure there was, like, let's say during World War II, I mean, we knew that there was uh, German spies and actors in the United States doing all sorts of uh, subversive tactics, you know, during during wartime. And I think the difference is, is we just have a new technology now as opposed to print. Now it's now it's online. That uh that technology makes it far more accessible and it makes it a lot easier to do. So I think it definitely changed the game in that regard. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, we'll move on to um, Ocasio-Cortez. Really interesting race uh, in terms of the midterm election uh, or her midterm primary where she beat her incumbent in her district in the Bronx, Joe Crowley. And this is the New York's 14th congressional district. Uh, she has not been elected to her seat yet, but uh, this particular congressional district has not gone Republican in a very long time, probably since the earlier itera- uh, earlier iteration of the party system. So most people are saying that she'll be the eventual nominee or the eventual um, the eventual congresswoman from that district. Did you want to kind of give a little more background before we dive into thoughts on her platform? I think people uh, have been exposed to her a great deal at this point. I think we should go right into the platform. So I think that's more important here. The reason why we really wanted to talk about her was this was um, an electrifying case in that she's one of the youngest new members of Congress. She's definitely a millennial. 
Um, and she's in this kind of new wave of millennials in the Democratic Party who are finally uh, entering into political office or at least political notoriety. And her in particular, what's interesting is she's very proudly a Democratic socialist um, in a similar vein to Bernie Sanders. And we've seen her, you know, going on tour with Bernie. And we kind of wanted to discuss this idea of, of democratic socialism, uh, what it means in the case of Ocasio-Cortez, and what does it mean for the Democratic Party and millennials. Now, I think one thing that me and you both agree on is she's had some gaffes already. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, um, the two that I think were a little damaging to her brand um and by her brand is uh by extension it's also kind of democrats and millennials because in a lot of ways she represents in my opinion uh millennials more than democrats uh was the call for abolishing ice and then the other one was the complete lack of knowledge on the palestinian uh israel palestinian conflict um I mean, you step in if you have anything else you want to say before. I yeah. kind of. So I, I think, uh, I think those are very telling, those uh, those missteps, and I think it just kind of exposes the fact that she really um, is an ideologue more so than she would be a, an effective politician. And I think that uh, a lot of young people like the idea of democratic socialism, but don't really understand the implications or how it could even work if it could or if it even should be implemented. And I think something that's been coming up a lot is the fact that Bernie Sanders wasn't actually a democratic socialist. He was a social democrat. So he really didn't want to dismantle capitalism so much as he wanted to put um, like a braking system on it that could slow it down if it got out of hand. Whereas a lot of democratic socialists seem to have a problem with capitalism as a whole. And I think Ocasio-Cortez hasn't shown like super extreme views yet. I think there's a lot of stuff that just makes me kind of go, eh. But I don't think she's as bad as the people in the streets that are demanding that private property be returned to the state and that we just eliminate borders entirely. But I think there's a just cause to be worried about that because a lot of the people that would support Ocasio-Cortez do believe these things. So Merriam-Webster reported that searches for the word socialism spiked 1,500% after her victory. And I know that um, socialism has always been present on college campuses across the United States. Um, But I do know that when I was at the University of Minnesota before coming out here to L.A., that you were starting to see quite a few people setting up booths on campus and and um, trying to educate people on socialism. Uh, I think that Ocasio-Cortez, I agree with you, in terms of being a socialist, it still sounds like um, she's interested in having a, a semi-capitalist society. Um, I think the main issue with Ocasio-Cortez is I'm not sold on how, how much she actually knows the subject matter that she's talking about as opposed to is exposed to a couple of different people with some political ideas. And she's just kind of like, that sounds, that sounds pretty good, you know, and I'll roll with that. What I found to be really interesting about 
Cortez is had you heard about this initiative called the Justice Democrats? No, I haven't. So apparently they were the uh, one of the big financial donors behind Ocasio-Cortez and they've also supported oh, I want to say 30 or 40 other um, young Democrats um, coming up to um, run for Congress. And so it's between them, the Justice Democrats, and brand new Congress, which is the whole idea is getting a new Congress and really unseating establishment Democrats. It's almost like a Tea Party on the left um, that she's a part of. And apparently um, some big spearheads behind the Justice Democrats in terms of like forming it and uh, doing the bureaucracy of making this basically political action uh, committee a PAC um, are the Young Turks which I did not know this. This was, was really interesting to me. And um, a big part of what they want to see is basically just a more progressive uh, version of the Democrats. They want a new New Deal. Um, they want to end arms sales to human rights violators, countries that are human rights violators. They want a federal jobs guarantee which promising, promises all Americans a job paying $15 an hour plus benefits, uh, ending the de- death penalty, uh, ending unilaterally waging war, ending war on drugs, uh, net neutrality, universal education, including college, universal health care, paid maternity leave, uh, expanding anti-discrimination laws to homosexuals and transgenders. Um, let's see here. Expanding background checks on firearms, ban- assault weapon ban, funding Planned Parenthood, electoral reform, pu- publicly financed elections. Let's see. Is there anything else here that's worth? Um, minimum wage, a living wage, and tying it to inflation. Pardoning Ed- Edward Snowden. Passing the Paycheck Fairness Act, abolishing ICE, and stopping climate change. Yeah, and they uh, they want a socialized, guaranteed housing system as well. And to clarify, the Paycheck Fairness Act is a act that uh, addresses the gender pay gap in the United States. Um, and so, yeah, they're they're supporting all these different uh, young Democrats across the country. And so far, most of the candidates that they've gotten behind have won their primaries, which is also interesting to know. Um, another thing I thought that was really impactful about Ocasio-Cortez's campaign is she was outspent 18 to 1 in her district. And the guy, the incumbent that she was running against, Joe Crowley, was endorsed by pretty much the entire Democratic establishment, except for one lady uh, who who endorsed both of them. She's like, oh, whoever wins. Um, however, the one thing I know I noticed about her is I didn't I had no clue who she was until I was on Facebook and I saw a political ad for her on Facebook and I saw quite a few. I didn't see anything for him. And I think one big difference was she ran a national social media campaign where if he had a social media campaign it was very targeted to his district Um, and that kind of shows that use of new technology and running nationally as opposed to just in your district these could be two new trends that we see on the horizon 
that's an interesting point. So um, with the Justice Democrats, you know, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how I feel about it. I've watched the Young Turks a couple of times. Um, I wasn't like super impressed with them as a news source. I definitely got the idea that they were kind of an extension of the MSNBC uh, kind of format and school of thought. Um, I do appreciate um, their social justice initiatives. However, I'm not sure that, again, some of these platform points um, are necessary or they should be prioritized uh, for the Democratic Party, especially um, the idea of abolishing ICE, ending the death penalty, and the federal jobs guarantee. I find these all to be kind of pie in the sky and a little bit politically risky. Yeah, I would agree with you completely on that. I mean, they, they haven't really examined Ocasio-Cortez's uh, policy plans at all. And the funny thing about the Young Turks is that I didn't know that they were actually full-on supporting her. I thought it was more of just a uh, towing the party line kind of thing. But I didn't know they were actually backing her campaign. Well, I should clarify, the Justice Democrats was founded by Sink Uyer of the Young Turks, Kyle Kalinske of Secular Talk, and former leadership of the 2016 Bernie Sanders political campaign. So it's not necessarily the Young Turks organization itself, which obviously has other people in it, but the creator essentially of the Young Turks is uh, a guy spearheading it. And in that way. Um, and he's also it, still their mouthpiece. Yeah. Yeah. And they, uh, they don't challenge. It's interesting now knowing that information to see that they haven't really challenged her in any way. They just, are kind of doing what Fox News does with Trump, where he'll do something ridiculous, and then they just go, aren't liberals freaking out about this? They're doing the same thing with Ocasio-Cortez. They're just kind of reveling in the fact that she's shaking things up and not really uh, dissecting the implications of these policies. I mean, and I, I do definitely get the value of that. I mean, this whole populist wave on the right happened because of the Tea Party movement and because of basically a movement within the Republican Party that then could become a national movement. What I'm a little fearful of is I feel like we're getting talking points on the right and the left that are so outside of the core issues that people are focusing on these things that are either impossible or highly unlikely and they're ignoring the everyday administration of government. So, for example, if Ocasio-Cortez was to be elected president tomorrow, in some ways I would be just as fearful of that government as I am of the Trump government because I feel like it would be nearly as inept, you know? Yeah, and that's exactly where I stand on this as well. I think it's dangerous to meet crazy with crazy. Well, and would you would you say that she's would you put her in the ballpark of crazy? I would say um I would say Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I would I would I would say she's delusional, not necessarily crazy. She's I don't think that she is 
a bad person. I don't think she should be viewed as someone who is evil. I, I know that uh, a lot of people on the right are trying to paint her that way. I just think it is delusional to uh, set a precedent where we would live in a borderless society where people vote on what to do with other people's property, which is where uh, the democratic socialist, I, I believe this is where they're trying to take it where they're trying to take things. And half of the country does not want any type of socialism at all, regardless of uh, the fact that some of our policies are already socialized, or our programs, rather. So it's it's just going to piss a lot of people off, I think, and not in a productive way. So another um, talking point on their policy, on the Justice Democrats' political platform, is oppose bigotry. It's under their defend our democracy theme, which also um, contains abolish ICE and corruption um, and ironically stop constitutional overreaches. Um, And so this opposed bigotry says that they must speak out against racism, sexism, xenophobia, xenophobia, and all forms of bigotry. Making all Americans... What was that? I said, who's defining what constitutes bigotry? It said, non-discrimination protection should include the LGBTQ community and the atheist community. And it says, making all Americans equal is not asking for special privileges, is asking for the rule of law. Um, I feel like that's a little soft. Well, like, yeah, I feel like that needs to be needs to be unpacked a little bit more of like what their definition of bigotry is and what they're asking for equality on when, especially when it, you know, when it comes to the atheist community, that's a really interesting one. Um, Like I'd like to see where they're going with that. Um, I am hesitant to say that any, I think that that's a sentiment, right? Like opposing bigotry is, is a value and an ideal. And I think it's something that most that you should have. Like, ideally, a good person would have that. But to put that as a policy, uh, a political platform is that one of the things we want to do is end or oppose bigotry. Um, I don't know that that's something that you can politically end <laughs> without, in, in some way, like, having government overreach into people's personal lives. It's like almost like thought policing. Yeah, well, that's exactly what it is. And it's just the, the definition is so loose now. It's like if you, uh, like these, these policies would consider uh, someone like Majid Nawaz, who's listed as, um, as a uh, bigot or however they list people on the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center's list of bad people. <laughs> I don't know the actual term for it, but people that, uh, basically don't agree with the liberal dogmas, they're considered bigots now. That word gets thrown around way too much. So I'm, I'm worried about trying to implement this anti-bigotry as policy. It's one of those things that sounds nice. It's like, yeah, we're all against bigotry. We're all against uh, racism and xenophobia and homophobia and all those things, but who's defining those terms? it's so loose now that you can't possibly actually draw up some reasonable policy that could end that. 
So you're talking about the hate map on Southern Poverty Law Center's website where it like talks about uh, different hate groups? Yeah, it's it's weird. Yeah, it could be the hate map. I think they also have a list of dangerous people like Sam Harris is on there. So I I I find value in it. I've seen it before. Um and I find value in it just because if you're going to move to a location, I think you should know if there's like really well coordinated hate groups act, you know, active in that community cuz it's something that you're going to have to deal with, you know. So I do I do find value in it, but I I think there's a difference between identifying, hey, these are people who have said hateful things and and have promoted violence to certain groups. You should be aware. And I do think that there's even a difference between the government cracking down on people who are promoting the threat of violence based on hateful thoughts and a political platform that just basically says we're opposed or we need to oppose or end um, bigotry that for the most part is just prejudice and hateful thoughts now those can lead to actions but bigotry in and of itself at least as far as i've ever heard the term used is a thought it's a way of thinking it's uh if you look at in the dictionary it says intolerance towards those who hold different opinions from oneself and by that you couldn't even have a political debate you know no and their their definition is uh is so broad and ridiculous who they can throw under that bus like for example to bring up Majid Nawaz again he is a former uh, Islamic extremist who has done a 180 and now he pushes for um, the modernization of Islam and he's heavily critical of some of the more archaic uh, beliefs held within the Muslim community abroad mostly and in Europe. This is the distinction that needs to be made there uh, by people like Majid Nawaz and Sam Harris and Bill Maher is that the U.S. doesn't really have that assimilation issue that they're seeing in places like France and, uh, and various other neighboring nations. So we're not having these issues they're having in Denmark with the burqa bans and uh, the rise of these jihadist movements, these homegrown uh, factions that are calling for Sharia law to be implemented in parts of Europe. So Majid Nawaz being heavily critical of the, the thought systems that make that possible has landed him on the Southern Poverty Law Center's group of people that promote hate speech and bigotry. That I find to be very confusing. Interesting. That is that is interesting. Um, so the next thing kind of want to talk about is some, is, and we already kind of talked about this issues that the Democrats need to drop or press. And I think the number one thing we've already talked about it, but not really dug into it is, I definitely think that they need to drop this whole abolish ice thing, or at least they need to reframe it, because from what it sounds like from the outside, from the layperson is you're saying we need to get rid of immigration and uh, immigration enforcement and customs enforcement. And one of the biggest sentiments of why Trump was able to rise to prominence was because Democrats were perceived as weak on the border. And this sounds like the Democrats just want have don't like you said, don't want us to have a border at all, Uh, which I don't think that that's the majority of Democrats. 
but enough people are seeing it where now it's easy for anybody who's outside the Democratic Party to paint Democrats as just wanting to let anybody come in with anything um, and not care about what they do inside the country. Yeah, but I think I think those are mostly establishment Democrats that we would probably agree with on that. But uh, there's definitely a rising uh, sentiment among young people, young left-leaning people that do think it's a good idea to get rid of borders. Well, to give a little background on ICE, um, ICE was a blend of the previous uh, U.S. Customs Enforcement, United States Customs Service and United States Immigration and Naturalization Service, INS. And if you remember back in the day when we were kids, when they talked about um, immigration doing things, it was an INS thing. Um, and after 2002, after um, 9-11, they were rolled into one organization to better coordinate, uh, and it was called ICE, the Immigration and, and Customs Enforcement um, Agency. And... So under the purview of ICE, not only do you have uh, immigration um, enforcement and and people patrolling the borders, but then you also have the Customs Service, which is responsible for making sure that illegal items don't enter the country. Um, And some of those items could be counterfeit merchandise, um, illegally imported motor motor vehicles. Uh, They also help enforce intellectual property rights, which is something that people have identified as a big issue, particularly when it comes to um, um, some countries that have much more lax intellectual property rights, like China, for example. Um, Illegal drugs, stolen property, undeclared firearms and weapons, undeclared liquor, unreported money, and uh, unscreened fruits and meats, which is kind of important, especially when we're talking about um, invasive species of plants and animals, which can be a huge issue um, for ecological systems. And so when we talk, when people talk about just totally disbanding ICE, as a person who has, that knows the purview of what ICE does, especially having served in the federal government and served as part of the intelligence apparatus, um, I don't see how that's even possible considering some of the other functions they do. And it automatically makes me see that person as somebody who doesn't understand how the government works. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what it is. And I think what, I mean, obviously what set this whole uh, abolish ice thing ablaze was the uh, separation at the border. So how do you feel they could go about, um, kind of doing a re-education do you think that uh that democrats should should kind of promote a re-education on to as to what the uh, federal government actually does with programs like ice so yeah i think one i mean so ins itself originally it was a part of the u.s department of labor from 1933 to 1940 and then the department of justice in 1940 so it's been around for 90 years or something thereabouts, 80, 80, 90 years. And I think one, we do need prominent young Democrats to come out and say, this is ridiculous and this is why. But I, I think that we're in this age now where 
the emotional cry is more important than the content. And I think it's always been that way. But right now, because of social media, we have all sorts of segments of the population more politically engaged in some ways than ever, not necessarily in terms of voting, but in terms of banding behind these rallying calls. And I think part of the logic behind it is it's loud enough and bold enough to where it captures people's attention. I think it should be countered um, by a democratic call for amnesty, for immigration, a one-time immigration amnesty. Uh, I think we talked about this a little bit uh, when we covered Central America, the crisis in, in Central America. And it's not the first time that the United States would have had an immigration amnesty. Actually, the last time there was a major immigration amnesty was under Ronald Reagan which I find ironic that uh, the Republican Party loves Ronald Reagan so much, but again, doesn't know enough about what he was doing to realize, or uh, re- uh, what he did to realize that he was a pro-immigration president um, and was, was a president that was into immigration reform. And so in 1982, I believe, did uh, a general amnesty to try to get everybody who was here documented, and that way they were in the system and tried to then shore up um, uh, patrolling the border in different ways to enforce um, legal immigration. And that's one call that I think that I've talked to quite a few right-leaning and conservative people about it, and they would be open to an amnesty as long as there was strict enforcement after said amnesty. And I think that is the best way to come to a compromise on this issue. Unfortunately, I haven't heard from the left or the right anybody talk about doing a kind of timed pre-planned so saying okay if you if you register to um, immigrate legally and you're already in the country within the next year this will be your cutoff point and after that you can't get it and, the, and you're going to get deported i haven't heard anybody talk about it. it it seems like either one people just want all uh illegal immigrants to get deported or apparently abolishing ice and i think we need strong democratic leadership in terms of wait why don't we talk about i mean we have this social media we have all this these different ways to promote it say we'll allow you to immigrate legally until the say 2020 and this will be the last date and put the date everywhere you know this is the last date to get it done if you don't we are going to then start deporting people um and at that point you know, it's not our fault if you didn't do what you were supposed to do. The date's been posted everywhere. It's kind of like um, the healthcare mandate. You know, the whole idea is that it was everywhere. So if you didn't get enrolled, it wasn't anybody else's fault but your own. You know, and it took yeah. personal agency into account. Yeah, I mean that's an interesting point, and we'll uh, we'll see as these uh, these issues unfold. What's uh? Do you have one that you think that the Democrats need to drop or depress more? Um, I think they need to push climate change more. Yeah. And I think that we need to hold uh hold the right accountable for climate change denial. I don't think there's any excuse for it, and there's no reason for us to still be having that conversation. It's it's damage control time. Uh, absolutely. After this summer, um, especially being out here in California and all of these different wildfires, but really ev- no part of the country was unscathed this 
in the last six weeks in terms of the effects of climate change. We had record temperatures worldwide, flooding all over the East Coast, fires all on the West. Um, I don't understand why neither party has at the very top of their agenda, one, climate change, and two, how to sustain economic growth in a situation where we know we need to implement changes to address climate change. And I feel like it just becomes a side note. Like nobody has prioritized this as their main political action item. Yeah. And that's exactly the problem that I have with it as well. So that needs to be pushed hard. And I think young conservatives should be on board with it. I haven't heard any come out and say that they believe climate change is man-made and it's a very pressing issue. And that still really bothers me that they have to toe the party line to that extent. Well, I think that the the young conservatives now, I mean, you look at the Tea Party and you look at the rise of the liber- Libertarian Party, I think it puts them in a tough position because at their fundamental core, they believe that initiatives should be taken on from free market enterprise and that the government should have no hand in what private companies do. Unfortunately, the thing about a private company is, is that it has an obligation to its shareholders first to provide return on investment. And so unless it's something that's going to give them return on the investment, most private companies, not all of them, obviously there's, there's, um, there's exceptions such as what Elon Musk has been doing. And that's why he has such a splash and why he's had so much money come his way is because people believe in what he's doing. Basically it's money. uh, It's, it's cause over return. Um, But for the most part, I think that those libertarians have an issue with the climate change stuff because it implies either government intervention or government subsidies, which are complete anathema to the libertarian political stance, which says we don't want government um, taking on tax money for any purpose other than national defense. And also, too, um, they don't believe that government should be subsidizing any businesses or picking and choosing winners in the economy. So I think that that's part of the reason why you're not seeing it on the right, which I respect their principles, but I think when you see how dramatic things are getting, maybe you need to be a little bit more flexible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so We're not living under a sustainable model. It has to be adjusted. And I think that needs to be at the forefront of the, of the next presidential election. For example, I mean, like, yeah, by, by that, if you were to take a hard line stance in that way, you would say that the smog checks uh, in the Western United States shouldn't exist um, that it's a frivolous uh, government exercise, waste of taxpayer money, it's not from private enterprise, yada, yada, yada. But I can tell you right now that I've had some pretty dramatic um, health reactions to how bad the air quality here, and apparently it's better now than it was 80 years, or um, in the 1980s. Apparently it's it's been significantly reduced. Um, but even with that, people who live in um, areas like L.A., where the smog pollution is so bad and Denver is actually becoming worse. Seattle's becoming worse. Um, the risk of cancer goes up substantially. Um, so at the end of the day, especially if those people who are getting those services end up going to um, hospitals that either have to eat the bill 
or they're going on to Medicaid and Medicaid's having to pay for the cancer. One way or another, it becomes an additional cost if you don't address the root cause up front. And I do see that as one of the shortcomings of the idea of the government being completely hands off because it's like you're then expecting that every individual citizen is just going to make the right decision on their own all the time, you know? So, okay, so what do we got next? Um, let's see. I mean, let me think. What else? What other issues? I think. Uh, I think the Democrats need to drop. Um, I think they need to drop the like ban on all guns thing. Mm-hmm. And the, this is this is the deal. Is like I've never liked weapons. I didn't really like like a big thing that stopped me from going into mili- into the military right after high school was I didn't know how I felt about gun violence. Um, I've never owned a gun. I've shot plenty of guns. Um, and I have a lot of friends who have a lot of guns. So I, I'm exposed to them. I, I say a lot to say I'm exposed to them, but it's not something that I personally have a great deal of enjoyment from using a weapon or comfortability around. However, I don't if you look at the actual statistics, yes, you have these these huge uh, massacres that have happened in the United States because of altered weapons, and I do think that things should be addressed when it comes to fully automatic assault weapons. But the whole idea that we ban all guns when, statistically speaking, the people who die from, let's say, handguns is so much smaller than a lot of other things that we've already discussed. For example, climate change and pollution and how um, waste materials are uh, are disposed of. I think that those should be a bigger priority than the guns thing. And I think the guns is just driving a wedge between the Democrats and the 50% of Americans that live in rural areas that either have a gun because of um, hunting or because they just feel insecure about being out in the middle of nowhere and not having you know, not being able to call the police and have the police be there right away. So they want to have a gun just in case, you know, and I, I just think it's a, it's an issue that again, the Democrats really need to um, look closer at, cause I feel like they're alienating a lot of people who would be in their camp, but feel like are being pushed out because, because of not thinking about their circumstances. And by that, I mean, rural voters particularly. And I think uh, just on that note, I think that conservatives need to drop the uh, I need the assault rifle to protect me against the tyrannical government ideology because it's just not accurate anymore. I mean, an AR-15 is not going to protect you from drones in the Marine Corps. It's that we're past that this, a situation where that could be relevant. It was a law written when people had muskets and cannons. So some common sense revision could be made, but the whole idea that we should just ban gun ownership rights outright is just nonsense. Another one I do think that um, that the Democrats could press, that they need to press and they need to reframe, is they need to reframe Social Security and Medicare. 
Um, it's really interesting. We live in a time where like social security and Medi- Medicare have been really assaulted for when for many years um, it was pretty much sac- sacrosanct to not um, go after social security and Medicare because that was one issue that older voters still felt like they needed and they were afraid of people touching it. I still remember um, in the 2008 election campaign and uh there was a lot of conservative voters who said, I can't let Obama win. He's going to cut off my, my uh, Medicare, <laughs> which is like, what are you talking about? But apparently there was a lot of people who felt this way. Um, since then, the times have shifted. Uh, and it feels like there's a lot of people who, I guess our, our health system is just so convoluted that people don't know where exactly their, their health care is coming from. I, I think of uh, Sarah Silverman's show, uh, we are America, and she went down to Louisiana, was talking to this family and asking them, "Well, who pays the bills when you go to the hospital?" And they're like, "We don't know." And well, how do you feel about Medicare and and uh, and the Affordable Care Act? Oh, well, I you know I don't think the government should be paying, um, you know, any money into people's health, you know, da 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 da. But you know, lo and behold, when they talked about going to the doctor themselves, it was all being paid by Medicaid. So I think that there needs to be some way for the Democrats to re to. Hey, I'm sorry. My dog just got up on my face to go on to be on the podcast real quick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be some way to reframe the Medicare thing to where you can take it to those rural voters in, let's say, um, Ohio and Pennsylvania who are like, I'm losing my job or I want the government to step in and somehow shore up the coal um, coal country and say, hey, you know, we'll do what we can in terms of bringing private enterprise here. But in the meantime, at least you guys have some sort of um, safety net and we can provide some sort of opportunities to you um, through somewhat socialized medicine. And I don't know, obviously socialized medicine was not, would not be what you want to say because that's become politically toxic to say, but you just say maybe like some sort of medical assistance or medical aid, um, you know, um, because I know that people want it, right? Like the whole idea of, of the jobs, these manufacturing jobs coming back to uh, the upper Midwest is because people feel financially insecure. Um, and they feel that the best way for them to get health care and to be able to take care of themselves is by having a job, because that's what people were used to from the 1950s through the 1990s. Um, and so I feel like we've got to find some way that, that and the Democratic Party has it, obviously, because half of what Trump has proposed are traditionally Democratic ideas in terms of economic protectionism and everybody getting a job. These tend to be, you know, um, more on the liberal side, at least in terms of what liberal has meant since 1950. Um, and clearly they want it, but it just needs to be packaged in a way that speaks to their reality, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. Um, so then last one is post-Trump parties. So what do you think? Obviously, we've talked about kind of the ideal and where we think things should go or um, what, you know, what would be the best outcome. 
let's talk about what we think the most realistic outcome is after Trump. And so what do you think? Do you think the Republican Party survives after Trump? Do you think the Democratic Party survives after Trump? How do you think that they change? I think we're going to see a lot more of this uh, Ocasio-Cortez style politicians popping up. I think because uh, that's the ethos of the uh, the young Democratic Socialists is that they do want to kind of beat the establishment over the head until they acquiesce. And I, I think it's going to turn a lot of people off from the Democratic Party. That and just a lot of the way they're conducting themselves lately, it's going to push a lot of people away. So there are going to be a lot of people that are essentially up for grabs in 2020 a lot of voters because there are going to be a lot of people that are put off with Trump as well. So it really depends on who the democratic party pops up or props up rather. Yeah. I, I, I feel like there's a split coming. I don't know exactly how to predict it. I feel like there's a lot of Republicans that want to go somewhere else right now, instead of being in the Republican party, because they see the Republican party as a party of Trump, but they don't feel like they know where to go. Mm-hmm. And then I feel like you do have this rise of like extremely socialist leaning Democrats uh, on the left who are creating kind of another leg. I think it's possible that there's some sort of more centrist party that is a combination of libertarian. You know, honestly, at the end of the day, I I really do believe that you got to follow the money. Right. And a big part of the reason why I think Trump will somewhat degrade the value of the Republican Party is because he's having so much government intervention in the economy and in mainly stimulatory ways or uh, yeah, stimulatory ways, meaning he did the tax cuts. uh, He's doing all these different like subsidies and things like this that will have an effect on inflation. And when that all blows up, because it inevitably will, you can't have inflation without having um, the Fed then clamp down on inflation, which will cause a recession. I think you're going to see the rise of uh, something like a Ross Perot, which you saw in 92, um, where it's kind of like, uh, I'm trying to think who might be a good candidate as an example. I could, I could see like Marco Rubio, for example, although I don't know if he would ever leave the Republican Party, but he's the type of person who would like maybe make this third party challenge where he's it's very libertarian based, um, not so bigoted in terms of the kind of racial uh, overtones of what the leader of that party is saying. Um, and it takes enough of the vote away from Donald Trump for the Democratic candidate to win. And so I think that that's the most likely outcome. And then after Trump is gone, the question will be, does the Republican Party revert back to something a little bit more sub- substantive? Or does that party completely collapse and that third party that's created by somebody like a Rubio or like a John Kasich, which is a little more, like I said, libertarian um, and not so, uh, I'm trying to think of a way to put it, racially based really is a big part of it. Racially based and um, kind of interventionist, government interventionist. Um, 
is that the party that wins out and becomes the new, more conservative party? Um, yeah, I, it's go an ahead. interesting idea. No, because I'm, I'm wondering about that myself. I mean, I, I really can't even call it. But I do know that it's not going to, you know, this whole uh, idea of like race-based government or race-based leadership, which has really come to define Trump. I mean, let's just be really candid about it. Even uh, people of color in his own party have said, yeah, this guy's pretty much a racist. And I mean, the dog, like, it's not even dog whistle politics anymore. It's like when he disagrees with any black person, he just calls them stupid and, and like, uh, low IQ and things like this. Um, and then, you know, everything, almost all, like the immigration policy always gets um, brought back to uh, Hispanic or Muslim uh, ethnicity and quote unquote, like, you know, kind of like racial or national deficiencies. I don't think that that's a sustainable model for the long term in terms of the Republican Party. And so either they're going to have to have a, a big shift, which is probably unlikely. Um, when you've seen uh, political parties go for this ultra ethno nationalist viewpoint, or some something else will rise in its stead that's more um, tolerable. Um, I mean, I, th- I feel like you've seen the same thing in Europe, right? Where like there's been a recent resurgence of these ethno nationalist uh, conservative groups, um, but for the most part, they've been defeated, and and they've been in Europe in the past. I want to say in like the seventies. Um, but what ended up happening, for example, the lady who's in France who almost won, I can't remember her name right now, but her father was originally one of these ethno-nationalist groups in France in like the 70s. And it kind of waned. And when she came out, she was a little bit more um, nuanced and polished version of that. And so I, I think when you have this like extreme ethno-nationalism, it's just not a sustainable model for government. I don't see where it's ever worked before. I mean, we can look at Hitler, we can look at um, Mussolini, we can look at even in, you want you want to talk about ethno-nationalists, as both me and you know, in the Middle East, <laughs> a lot of ethno-nationalist groups, and none of them have ever lasted very long. So I just don't, I don't see how the Republican Party will be able to continue, especially when we have a country that's becoming more and more diverse, um, how it will be able to continue on a platform that's so heavily invested in those uh, ethno-nationalist overtones. Yeah, and it's important to to point out that they are overtones because it's not full-out ethno-nationalism. It's more like a dog whistle that everyone can hear. I don't know, though. I mean, I feel like before it was definitely dog whistle, but now I feel like it's become pretty overt, at least from him. Maybe not from everybody in the party, but it has from him. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's undeniable. And so that's that's the main thing is that like, and it seems, and I guess the other thing is I would say is I looked at the Republican Party platform today because I looked at all the party platforms and I wanted to see where they're at. And I mean, one of the things that's really interesting to me is the Democratic Party platform. My goodness, it's so long, dude, and there's so much detail in it it's ridiculous you go to the republican party platform they have like seven things which they don't even describe what their position is and actually one of them is just a preamble so it's like restoring the american dream rebirth of constitutional government agriculture energy and the environment government reform 
um, like kind of domestic, so like great American families, America resurgent. And it doesn't say anything about what their policies are unless you like click on it. And then at the bottom, it says, we've been listening to you. Based on your feedback, we've compiled a list on what it means to be a Republican. So it's like completely crowdsourced. And the number one thing on their platform for what it means to be a Republican is that our country is exceptional. And it's like, what does that mean? So, you know, I think this is another thing that the GOP has been really good at is, you know, we talk about identity politics and it's definitely on the left in terms of all these different um, small groups that want to be mentioned um, and get kind of like a special place. But the GOP in some ways is like the original identity politics because people don't even have certain issues that they're voting on. Um, It's more of like, I am Republican first and I have some generally vague values but even though the Republican Party doesn't seem to know enough of what their platform is to elucidate it in that they're just asking people, well, what do you want it to mean? <laughs> you know? Um, and so where I was going with that is I think the difference between the Republican Party now, I'm not sure that that's been really all that different over the last 20 years. But the one thing that I'm starting to see now of the people who are really behind Trump and are sticking with him um, that 30% or whatever it is, when you talk to them about the things that make them support him the most, you know, they say it's he's honest, he's candid, and, you know, he says what I believe. And if you, not all the time, but if you engage folks enough, and and I have found, and this is personal and it's anecdotal, but I found that the biggest thing at the core of it, at the crux of it, when I talk to folks about what he's saying that nobody else is saying and that they believe is a truth that nobody else wants to say, a lot of it has to do with perceived national deficiencies from other parts of the world and to a lesser extent perceived uh, ethnic deficiencies. Um, And maybe not necessarily saying that there's not a reason for these um, differences in behavior between ethnicities, but almost just an ignoring of how things may have come to be the way they are and just taking things at face value and saying, well, I see there's a lot of black people in the prison system. That means black people are bad. And it, and at least Trump will kind of acknowledge that and it confirms my biases. And a lot of people, when that becomes your main platform that he's confirming your, your ethnic or national biases, I don't think that that's a sustainable model because that's not a platform (laughs) that's not a political platform that's just somebody telling telling you it's okay to have the hatred in your heart that you do or to have the um the discrimination in your heart that you do and i mean it's not necessarily bad to be discerning don't get me wrong i'm not saying you shouldn't be discerning i'm just saying that let's say for example i don't like bugs right like, I just feel like bugs carry disease. This is maybe a totally bad analogy, but I'm going to go with it anyways. I'm already here. I don't like how they feel on my skin. They crawl on my skin, and I don't like it. Um, and we could have all these other issues. We talk about climate change, which has a direct impact on my life. We talked about healthcare, which has a direct impact on my life. But I just really don't like bugs. And I'm going to vote for the candidate who doesn't like bugs as much as I don't like bugs. 
I don't think that it works long term like that. I don't think that you can really, one, create effective government um, through things like that being your central platform. And because I think to a certain extent, if things get bad enough, people are going to be like, yeah, <laughs> maybe I should go with the guy who actually has some sort of idea. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of misinformation that goes into that, too. In terms of? In terms of um, people getting selective facts and the sharing of memes. I think that's one of the biggest issues that we have now is people look at a meme that has a statistic on it that supports whatever they believe, and they just share it. They don't think about it. They go, this was easier than reading an article and make the statement boom, there it is. And you're like, where the fuck did you get that? Oh, I don't know. Then why are you sharing it? Because it sounds good. So basically you're saying that it might not even, it, it may be not necessarily be just like ethnic and national attitudes, but there might actually be political ideas that are spread and just apparently I'm not getting them that sounds like they're kind of official and have to do with actual policy but aren't real. You know, well, I wasn't negating. I wasn't negating the ethno nationalism because that's all tied up into it. So it it just kind of it it works in tandem with that. So with social media, just expedited the sharing of false news and bad ideas and memes. I don't think get focused on enough because memes are perfect for the intellectually lazy. It's like I don't have to tell you what I think about something by reading about it, doing research and then writing my own freaking post, which would be like 150 words. Here you go. Here's something that sounds good. It sounds smart. It's got a fucking graph on it. That's what I think about it. And then somebody else sees it and they share it and it just goes on and on and on. Well, if you ever get the chance anytime soon, go and read the GOP's platform or at least their, their website on their platform. It's really interesting um, and especially if you compare it to the Democratic one, because it's just like the Democratic one kills you with information. It's just like facts and figures and all these different types of legislation they want to pass. And the Republican one is just the exact opposite. <laughs> well, they ran on that. Did you see that? Who who was the candidate? It probably was Trump that showed. Uh, or, so who was the Republican that uh, was showing some some bill and it was a huge stack of papers and they're like here's the one we want look how many less paper papers we use and that was legit how they marketed it to people they're like doesn't reading suck <laughs> and they were like yeah it does suck uh so you want to go ahead and do your um evil genius of the week and later free world or at least evil genius of the week we'll start there all right, so we're going to start with Evil Genius. All right, so let's see who my Evil Genius was. Oh, yeah, I, I said it was uh, Dave Rubin because uh, for the people who don't know, Dave Rubin is a now conservative uh, talking head that runs the Rubin Report on YouTube. And my problem with him actually lines up with the Young Turks, Anna Kasparian, who who's been very vocal in her criticism of Dave Rubin as of late, basically calling him an intellectual fraud. And I think 
that Dave Rubin has just switched sides to uh, to accommodate the right because he's a lifelong liberal, still de- uh, describes himself as a liberal, but has a show where he just gives a platform to people like Milo Yiannopoulos and uh, other people that are vocal on the right, provocateurs, um, and just lets their ideas go completely unchecked. He just does not have really any journalistic integrity at all. He just lets people use his platform to say whatever they want to say. And there's value in hearing people you might not want to listen to, but I think if you're going to let someone on your platform, you have to maintain control of the platform. And if you have something that doesn't make sense, you have to challenge it. And I don't think he does that. So I have a problem with Dave Rubin, even though he is now being lumped in with uh, Sam Harris and Joe Rogan and everybody else, Jordan Peterson, all the other people in the intellectual dark web. I don't think he really uh, fits the category of a, of a highly intellectual thought provoking figure. I think he just kind of fell into his situation due to a lot of luck. Hmm. Um, so my evil genius, I wouldn't necessarily say he's evil, but it's more on the genius side of what he's done recently is Bo Burnham with the uh, eighth grade movie that's recently come out um, and it's really picking up steam. Uh, we've talked about Bo Burnham a little bit where he's actually been uh, directing a lot of other stand-up comedian specials. He's also had some specials of his own. Um, he's, I feel like he's the millennial whisperer, actually even more than that, the generation <laughs> he whisperer, in that like his whole stand-up shtick is all about like infusing music with comedy and when he does his own stand-up which i for some reason i feel like it just speaks to the soul of of this generation especially since all of them have just been raised on disney musicals <laughs> i feel like especially millennials but also to generation z and so everything side of millennials for sure yeah for sure and like everything is made more uh more funny or more entertaining through music. And so he's definitely tapped into that. Another way, another thing though, with this eighth grade thing, it was already getting great reviews. I haven't seen it yet. Um, I want to now. Uh, however, he was having issues because there's uh, some sexual content in it. Uh, and he was, and he wasn't able to get, you know, kids under the age of 17 to see it. Cause it was given an R rating. So what he's done is he's partnered with theaters throughout the country, one in every state to do free showings and when addressing the press he said you know yeah this isn't r-rated this is eighth grade he was saying that these are issues that all eighth graders deal with or at least many do um and i think it's smart um i think it's smart of course the studio and probably maybe him has to pay money for the showings because they're free and it's not cheap to have movies in movie theaters as i've learned at b school here at usc um, but I think it's a great way to market it and, and to get, to keep the buzz going, to keep the buzz alive. Um, so far it's only done 7.6 million in the box office. Um, but I think it'll do a lot more after this. And then the budget for eighth grade was, just want to get it for you just so you know, the budget was. I might have to come back to you on the budget. Unfortunately, I'm not finding the budget. Um, 
But either way, um, whether it becomes a huge financial success or not, I think that this was a great move by Bo Burnham in terms of uh, increasing his profile. And I think he's going to be a lot more than a comedian after this. You know a little bit more about Bo Burnham than me. Yeah, I would say I'm definitely interested to see, just, just to watch this movie and see what it's all about because we haven't seen uh, Bo Burnham with this much creative control. So I think it'll be interesting. He's definitely a super talented dude. Would you say that you think he's going to be one of the top five comedians of the next decade? I think if his comedy grows as he grows, I think if he gets into, um, I think if his comedy can, can, can stay relevant as he ages, then we'll see. Okay. And who's your leader of the free world? Um, I'm actually going to do something unprecedented here and rescind one of my prior leaders of the free world. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'm going to de-leaderize Sasha Baron Cohen. Ooh, what happened? Yeah, well, I've just been watching his show. So first of all, I want to cite this article by Sophie Gilbert at The Atlantic called Who is Sasha Baron Cohen Satirizing? And this article pretty much hits the nail on the head as far as what I've been feeling watching the show lately. So it still has its funny moments, and he still manages to uh, to strike a nerve with some of his sketches. But a lot of it, there are a lot of missed opportunities in there, and a lot of it is just disgusting, gross-out gag humor. And he just, it, a lot of these clips look like they shouldn't have made it to the air, making me wonder who like this author here, who is he actually trying to satirize? Is it America or is he trying to troll Republicans? Because he's had a couple of uh, a couple of sketches now where he's just being a vile, disgusting person to a prominent Republican and they're pretty tolerant. It actually makes them look good. They're just like, dude, I don't support what you do, but I guess you have a right to do it. And it just makes me wonder where the humor is there because it doesn't seem funny. And when the interviews aren't going well, he just resorts to the like kind of grosser parts of Borat and Bruno type humor where it's just juvenile and, and perverse. Well, I was about to say, isn't that what um, Bruno, a lot of it was about and somewhat Borat? There was some kind of gross out scenes and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. And that's kind of always been a part of his ensemble comedically. That's kind of been in his arsenal. But I just, I don't know. I'm just starting to wonder what the point of this show is because it's just, it seems like a lot of it is just low-hanging fruit. You're just making people look bad that we already knew were bad people. And uh, like Joe Arpaio, for one, he got him on the latest episode. And, uh, then it's just making better conservatives uncomfortable. I don't understand the comedic value there. But that's my, yeah, that's what you got to take it away. So mine's not necessarily a leader of the free world yet, but she's definitely a leader to watch. And that's going to be this Rashida Tlaib, uh, who's become the first American Muslim woman elected to Congress. Um, and she won in Michigan's 13 district. So this is a state that that um, Trump 
Trump won in 2016. Um, she's interesting She's in that she's Palestinian-American, but she also has ties to Central America. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how she uses her voice in Congress. But definitely um, a big up. We've had, you know, a couple of Muslims in Congress. Um, but I think what's even more interesting about her is that most of the Muslims we've had in the Congress before have actually been African-American. She's the first, uh, I believe, Middle Eastern Muslim to ever serve in um, the United States Congress. So um, she has a unique voice that'll be interesting to see how she uses it. Uh, the midterm or the uh, primary, it was a Democratic primary that she won in her district. Uh, no Republican ran. Um, and so she just had to beat out a crowded field of Democrats. And that was yesterday. And she was declared the victor this morning. So this is brand new breaking news. Awesome. Oh, we can get some breaking news. I know that our segment's going or our uh, podcast going a little long this time, but I did want to ask you real quick because we were talking about it. Um, yeah, I know you sent me the new J. Cole. Um, so, who do you think? Who do you think's rap king for this year, man? Because I said that I thought, uh, um, what's what's the guy's name? Uh, Lucas. Joiner Lucas. I thought Joiner Lucas was is really killing it in terms of being a lyricist this year. He apparently was hospitalized this last week um, and canceled the rest of his tour dates, which is very sad. And I hope that he's not too ill uh, because it just seemed like he was coming into his own this year. Um, and I, in my personal opinion, I was putting him over Drake, who I feel like Drake has really fully become a pop star. And then you sent me this new, new J. Cole mixtape or at least one track from it. So who's taking the crown this year, man? Oof, that's a good question. And that was going to be my leader of the free world with Cole, actually, because that, that freestyle got me really excited. Because You're not on Twitter, but Cole posted on Twitter. He always just says weird, enigmatic stuff randomly, but he just said, feed me beats <laughs> or something to that effect. And he got like 6,500 people sending him beats right away. And he's like, I'm just going to go through these and start freestyling. It's like J. Cole was getting us excited about rap again, which is what Joyner was doing for me like last winter and then early this year, like all throughout the spring, I was feeling about Joyner the way you are now, where you just go through his catalog and you're like, nobody's doing this anymore. So it's tough. I'd say Joyner had it for me the beginning part of this year, but now Cole's got me excited again. As for who's the rap king, it's still technically summer. We have to let Kendrick drop. <laughs> is is I haven't been uh, tracking. Does he have an album coming on the bubble? I'm sure he does because it's about that time. You know, it's <laughs> been over a year since. Damn, I think he's. Uh, I think he's got to have something coming, but maybe I think it'll probably come later in the year. And Big Sean, we haven't heard from. We kind of talked about this a little bit. But honestly, I'm heavily biased towards Cole. So if we're making it Cole versus Joyner, I would say I'm waiting for that for that next Joyner album before I can say anything. Because we already heard J. Cole's album. And it's, you may be right. Um, it's just 
just today, news article came out. Kendrick Lamar becomes only the second rapper in history to spend 300 weeks on the Billboard chart. Can you guess who the first rapper ever to spend more than 300 weeks on the Billboard charts is? Were you asking me? Yes, sir. I don't know. Take a guess. Jay-Z. I'll get, take one more guess. <laughs> Oh, you're getting warmer. The answer is the one and only Slim Shady. Oh, yeah, of course. So that's the show for the week. Thank you so much for listening. Um, Next week, we'll talk a little bit more um, about all sorts of different stuff. We'll leave it as a surprise. So look forward to seeing you you next week. (laughs) And take care. (laughs)